Hey gang, thank you for listening to May's edition of Deep Dive. This week we are welcoming back one of our favorite guests, guitarist Kevin Armstrong. Now you may remember Kevin's uh, episode from the beginning of December. He's worked with a ton of people, especially people we love like Thomas Dolby, David Bowie, Morrissey. Well, we brought him back specifically to talk about Iggy Pop's 1986 album, Blah, Blah, Blah. I laugh because that is one of my sentimental favorite albums ever. I know full well that it is not considered necessarily an artistic achievement. It is his probably his most commercially successful album. It does feature the song Real Wild Child, which was totally ubiquitous there for a while, still is to some degree. And it was produced by David Bowie and David Richards, who had worked with Queen. So there's a, and Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols plays on it and co-wrote some of the songs. So there's a real great pedigree there. I love it as far as 80s albums of this ilk go. Iggy doesn't love it necessarily, but that's okay. So I wanted to bring Kevin back specifically to talk about, you know, how it was made, the behind the scenes stories, uh, track by track as we always do. Hopefully kind of, you know, recontextualize this album in a way where maybe it, uh, sounds better or it or it piques your interest to check it out most of all actually now we kick off this conversation to talk about kevin's solo album which just came out a couple of months ago called run you may remember i made it our album of the week that week it is so good he explains in here that he purposely chose not to post it on spotify for some of the obvious reasons he doesn't get paid for it so if you're someone who likes who like me likes to sort of try stuff out before you buy it, let me tell you first of all, it is excellent and it's worth your money. Secondly, go on YouTube and look up the single Leukocytes of Love. <laughs> I ask him what that even means. Uh, good luck spelling leukocytes. But get on there and look up Kevin Armstrong, the Leukocytes of Love. Listen to this killer first single off of this album. If you like it, buy the rest because it's amazing. Okay? Anyway, we are so grateful to know and be, you know, friendly with people like Kevin. It is, we are so blessed in this world sometimes. So thank you, Kevin, for coming back. Here he is. Well, first of all, I want to ask, let's talk for a second about Run. Because when you and I first did this last year, I think it was probably around September, October, you never mentioned that you had a solo album coming out. Did I and, know? Wow, that was really no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when it came out, I was I was pleasantly surprised, and you were kind enough to send me a copy, and I love it. And uh, I, for anyone who's listening, I it's not on Spotify. I think you purposely made the decision. Well, it was. It started out on Spotify, and then I looked at it and and realized that there's no reason for it to be there. To be honest, I mean, you know, I, first of all, I don't get paid if it's there, yeah, yeah. and secondly, I'm I'm selling direct on CD by mail order, or it's available on iTunes, Bandcamp, CD Baby, Amazon, and I get paid for all of those. Yeah. So I just thought, well, I, I should take a stand, really, on behalf of musicians who need to get paid. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't need to be on Spotify. I can connect with an audience in other ways, and that's that, you know. Yeah. Are you, uh, first of all, so it's really good, and anyone who is listening who isn't familiar, I would recommend, I do know there's a great video for Leukocytes of Love, which I think is the first single off that album.
this weird ram head on it is such a killer track it reminds this like sludgy kind of 90s guitar it reminds me a little bit of seether by veruca salt not the whole song but the, the tone of your guitar okay um, i don't even know what a leukocyte is what is that uh it's uh, leukocytes are um white blood cells ah. for fighting infection i think so it's a kind of it's a it's a kind of uh, allusion to the physical biology of of uh, our emotional lives in some way okay okay yeah there's a, so anyone who wants to get a taste of this album go check that out you have the weirdest names of songs on this album i don't know what <laughs> dog ate my gyro what does Again, that mean for an american reference uh, that's that's <laughs> probably uh, uh difficult to to get but uh first of all it's uh, a gyro is an employment check Oh. It's, it's a welfare check. And the phrase, dog ate my gyro, was something that was kicking around when I was younger uh, to describe the kind of miserablest singer-songwriter who might uh-huh. use that as a lyric, you know? Yeah. Uh, they'd sit there, you know, in, a, in an open mic in, in a pub somewhere, just, you know, with a moany kind of very slow tempo song about the, the miserableness of everything. And, they, and, and they, those were my dog ate my gyro type of singers, you know? Okay. <laughs> See, I would, I would never know that. No, it's 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 meant to be obscure. It doesn't matter really, but it's no, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's sort of payoff for me for that song where where I would say, you know, time would overtake us and words would fail when my dog ate my gyro, and it's a kind right. of I give up. You know what I'm trying to say? <laughs> right, right. And then uh, oh, beachy head. What what's a beachy on head? Beachy head on beachy head. Well, again. An English person oh, might easily get the connection because that's a that's a, a poignant song about a friend uh, who who took his own life and and uh, mm. Beachy Head is the is the number one suicide spot in the UK. It's where oh. it's, a, it's a big cliff top on the south coast where okay. people go to to throw themselves over. You know, got it. Uh, yeah. yeah. So that's on Beachy Head is is that that's the reference for that. Very English song titles, but very excellent songs. And for and there's the version of he knows I'd love to see him, which you yeah. wrote, co-wrote with Morrissey, and then there's also a version of Outside that you co-wrote with Bowie that he put yeah. and made the namesake of his Outside album. Yeah, my favorite track is Run. I'm usually a track one guy, and this is consistent okay. with that. Yeah, well, that's, that's me putting my best foot forward as well because that's a Bowie collaboration. I mean, it's a it's a song I co- contributed to the Tin Machine record. Oh uh, right, uh, yeah. yeah. I need to. I haven't listened to my Tin Machine albums for a while. Oh, it's That's on the right. first Tin Machine album. That rec- that that song it, it yeah. was by Bowie. It was one of those things. He heard me playing something. It's an old song of mine, and he heard me playing it and said, "Oh, I like that. Can I can I have that?" You know, yeah. uh, something with it. And so that became Run at that moment. And I've just okay. I've recovered it now. So yeah, yeah, I love it. Um, why why the skeleton the skulls? Yeah, I get asked this. First of all, you know, a sort of random 
choice of image that I, I that's my the, the skull on the left is a drawing by my 14 year old son and it's a it's a it's his homework to copy the, the drawing on the left and so he left the homework like that on a table uh, on a tiled table and I just stood above it and took a photograph of it and it was just the time we were looking for something for the and I looked at it I thought Do you know what there's so much allusion in in the lyrics of the songs to lost friends. I lost a brother when I was in 1979, who was very close in age to me, my younger brother. And uh, uh, just so much of that about uh, the duality of life and, you know, male relationships and loss and things like that. So, so the skulls are, are there for that reason. It's me and my brother, I suppose. You know, it's not, they're not meant to be miserable. They're not meant to be a heavy metal skull type of thing uh -huh. either. They're, they're anatomical, aren't they? You know, so yeah, they are. Yeah. yeah, it looks very academic, you know, yeah. like it came out of a medical book or something. Yeah, like well, that. I was very proud of my son's homework because I think it's a pretty good <laughs> It is. It's very good. Yeah. Good. Okay. Well, I hope people check out Run because it's great. And Leukocytes in Love is a great uh, way to get introduced to the album. Do you uh, do you go out and play shows to promote this album? In I haven't yet. I was supposed to do one in early May, but but Iggy's schedule took me to Australia, and so I cancelled it because I just didn't have time to really put the work in and make it what I wanted. So I'm I'm going to do that, but not until later in the year and early next year. So again, it'll be a slow burn thing. It doesn't have to be a. I'm not a pop sensation, so it can it can take its time. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wait till I'm ready. Good. Well, it's a it's a blast. I love it. Uh, okay, blah 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 is uh, a sentimental favorite of mine, and um, it's it was my introduction to Iggy. I was thirteen years old, and I remember so back in the day, whenever it was my my poor mom, whenever it was my birthday or Christmas, I would make just pages and pages of lists of of uh, tapes that I wanted. You know, albums that I wanted for my birthday or for Christmas. On yeah. cassette, I collected cassettes at the time, and then and I wanted her to be able to decide. I didn't want to influence her, but then eventually I would start putting stars next to the ones I really wanted, and then I'd put two stars next to the ones I really really wanted, and three. Anyway, it just went on and on and on. And uh, I saw a thing on MTV in the fall or early yeah fall of 1986 on Iggy, and I had never heard of him before. I was 13 years old. He just looked so cool. The short hair and the black leather and the black hair. There were references to Bowie, who was my favorite. And I just thought, I got to know what this is. And so mm -hmm. I I added blah, blah, blah to my Christmas list. And I made it near the top of the list. And sure enough, I got it for Christmas. Right. I can understand if other people who are Bowie long or longtime Iggy fans would have an issue with this album. Even as I get older and I listen to it now, I can see how unique it is in his catalog. But to me, because of that moment, I have such endearing sentimental feelings for it. I love it a lot. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's an uncharacteristic Iggy Pop album in some ways, and it's very much of its time in some ways, the way it yeah. sounds. But it still, I think, remains his most commercially successful yeah. record. So it's the one that most people bought. So if, if people have a glancing relationship with the work of Iggy Pop, it's quite likely to be that record. So for that reason, it deserves to exist. You know, I mean, it's not it's not a, an archetypal what you think of an Iggy Pop album if you know his whole career. Right. But it's uh, it's got its place, you know. 
Yeah, a lot of the a lot of the reviews that I've been reading or a lot of the articles that I've been reading to get ready to talk were are referencing a lot of, you know, this is Iggy's Let's Dance. So this is Bowie helping Iggy have a Let's Dance or a Tonight or something like that. And it's I've a, always wondered, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah, I've always wondered if you knew whether that decision was that calculated. Do you happen to know, did those two ever say to each other, did Iggy ever say to Bowie, man, I would love to have a Let's Dance hit. Well, let's go out and make you one, Egg. Do you I know if... So. I don't think so. I mean, for me, as a young gunslinger at that time, you know, getting that kind of opportunity, I wasn't really thinking about generically was did, how did this fit with Iggy's thing or, or whatever. I was just really caught up in the moment of doing that. And at that particular time, I mean, and everyone was making those kind of sounds at that time anyway, yeah. you know, and those, that kind of production style. So it just seemed to me something of the, of the time. Uh, so, you know, although I was familiar, not with all of Iggy's work, but definitely the mid period, like uh, um, Lust for Life, The Idiot, and I'd heard a little bit of early Stooges. And so I knew it wasn't uh, completely, you know, the same as that. But I guessed it was just a, just a, a take on how to do how you do a modern Iggy Pop record. And that, that's that's what I thought of it at the time. I didn't I didn't hear any strategic conversation among them about what kind of thing it would mean or anything. And again, I think they were probably just making music the way they knew how. Yeah, I've wondered that, too. How and when did you get the call to be a part of this team? I think the album was recorded, if I'm correct, in late 85 or early 86. Okay. Late 85, I think. And so it was a few months after Live Aid. I was in a studio in Cardiff in South Wales working with Alien Sex Fiend, mm -hmm. <laughs> old friends. And I was like, you know, I, uh, I was helping them make a, a record and staying at their house and going to the studio every day, working with them. And I got a call in the studio. Bowie must have called my home in London, got the forwarding number, just called the studio straight away. And Nick mm. Feed answered the phone to, to him and, you know, sort of looked at me across the studio and said, oh, God, it's David Bowie for you. So I just got a call. Uh, and he said, uh, I'm making an album with Iggy Pop. I'd really like you to come and play some guitar on it. If you can just get on a plane and come to Switzerland uh, next week, uh, come along. You know, so... That uh, sounded like a good good idea to me. Sure. <laughs> now, everything I was reading is apparently their whole that Iggy and David took their girlfriends to Gestad. I never, I don't know how quite to say it. Gestad, yeah, Gestad. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's a ski resort, right? And it's a posh yeah. resort in in Switzerland. Exactly. They skied for three months, and they took a recorder with their with them, and they kind of worked on songs while they skied with their girlfriends and what I, I really want to know is if you got to take part of that no I never heard anything to do with that by the time I got there pretty much I'm sure all the songs were written because okay. the way we worked was was quick you know there wasn't a creative process that had gone was starting then it, it had started long before I arrived I'm sure huh and uh whose decision was it to bring in David Richards well I'm sure that was Bowie because he must have worked with David Richards before David was Queen's regular mm -hmm. engineer and uh, was pretty much working at Mountain all the time. I think that's yeah. okay. and he must have worked on Under Pressure yep. with David, and they they knew each other because he was David was local. He was living in Lausanne down the road, okay. uh, uh, so I guess David was the obvious choice if he was available because he knew the studio so well. And he was obviously a great engineer. Uh, why do you think it was that Bowie wanted a partner? 
Did, I, I don't remember him having a partner when he produced, you know, Lou Reed's Transformer. Wasn't Ken Scott around at that time? Didn't oh, probably, yeah. You I know, don't remember you know, if he was a co-producer, though. Well, I feel Bowie like he's wasn't just... technical. Bowie was a, uh, a creative producer, for sure. But he wasn't necessarily hands-on the equipment all the time. I mean, that's a boring job, in a way. Uh, I think it's really good if you're a producer. However, it can be a burden to have all the technical responsibility as well, of doing all the stuff every day. Yeah. So I think that was Dave's gig, was to be the hands. Okay. And Dave was the, the 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 overarching artistic overseer of that record. Clearly, you know, but but David David was just a hands-on guy yeah. doing engineering. Yeah. Okay. I think when I, I mentioned when we talked before, I don't remember where I read this, but it was years ago. That I read that in their relationship, David Bowie would just sort of pop in and sort of uh, yeah, that sounds great, and then he'd go back out and ski or whatever, and David and leave David Richards for oh, no, all no. the work. I, I don't know I don't know where you got that from. Yeah, that wasn't how I remember it. David was there a lot of the time. I mean, yeah. it was quick work, so we there wasn't hours and hours and hours spent on stuff, and and he came in more or less with a a worksheet for the day, you know, a list of tasks which had to be got through, and I think he'd more or less worked out how long it would take and what needed to be done for that schedule to be kept to, and he was there. A lot of the time that I was there, okay. did, there was no skiing in Montreux. If anybody knows about uh, <laughs> uh, Switzerland, Montreux is on the north shore of Lake Geneva. And the nearest skiing is probably, I don't know, 40, 50 miles away at least, maybe more. There was no way Bowie was, was popping in and out and skiing. <laughs> he, okay. was, he was there. His head was in the, in the record, really. Good. Yeah, you had mentioned that, and honestly, nothing I read leading up to talking to you just now uh, confirms that. So I don't know where I heard that or got it, but I read it once, and it's always kind of stuck. Like, could that be true? But it sounds like it wasn't true. So no, that's not good to true. Know. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think he's paying for it. I mean, David was paying for it, right? It was his. Mm. It was his gesture to 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 make that record with Iggy. It was a real collaboration. His heart was really in it. You know, he was singing on it. He was playing bits of guitar. He was doing all sorts of things. You know. Why do you think Bowie? felt or did he feel compelled to support Iggy during the 80s at this time with re-recording China Girl and having songs on Tonight and then this like why what did he feel like he owed it to him or did he feel like Iggy was the best possible collaborator he could have at that I think time just, I think he always liked he always loved Iggy didn't he right from yeah. the he, he loved Iggy they collaborated before and I think that, that he just felt at that time he needed a helping hand he was the guy who could do it this is pure speculation but it's possible he was making a test bed for something of his that would follow mm. you know didn't he what did he make tonight after that what was it he made tonight before it and he made never let me down right after it. Let me down well maybe he was searching around for other techniques I mean I think the lust for life and the idiot were were a little bit of a test bed for yeah. love heroes too so there was maybe some of that going on if i make an iggy pop record i can try out a few things which maybe i can use and i, I just think he was he just he wanted to help iggy uh, through a period where he had no record deal he was probably a little bit on the back foot and needed it needed some someone to kick him up the stairs you know and i think yeah. that that bowie was a natural person to help help his friend 
That makes sense. I, I, I'm going to read a little quote here from a book called uh, Open Up and Bleed. It's a book about Iggy, and it says, The album that would eventually be titled Blah 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 was undoubtedly a work characterized by professionalism rather than excess, and by order rather than chaos. And for that reason, it would be described by Iggy supporters as an Iggy-flavored Bowie album. Yet, if it's classified as a Bowie album, it qualifies as Bowie's finest work of the era, with better songwriting and more energy than Bowie's own Tonight and its successor, Never Let Me Down. The only serious question mark attach attaching to Blah 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 was whether it would succeed in its primary aim to establish the labelless Iggy Pop as a viable commercial artist. Well, I think it did, didn't it, really? I mean, it, he sold it to A&M after it was made. And uh, it's like I say, it's Iggy's biggest album commercially. So I think that you know, some good money changed hands probably for that record because they must have been excited. A&M America must have thought, well, this is a great, it's like you say, it's, it's probably better than the recent David Bowie output. It's yeah. got Bowie's name all over it and fingerprints on it. And, and, uh, it's, it's what it, it, and Iggy's already got a name which can probably be reintroduced to a new generation at this point. So I think it was a good deal all around. It was, a, it was the right moment for it. Okay. Um, I've heard that Iggy sort of disowned the album, or at least doesn't really acknowledge it now. Do you know? I mean, you work with him. I can't imagine. I've seen him lately. Do you know what? He, does, he never he, plays it. He does that quite a bit. I think that, you know, as I play with him the last five years now, he tends to do that. You know, I mean, he in a way, he's done the same with Post Pop Depression, the, the Josh Homme oh. album, which is an excellent record. But, and we start out, so you start out, you're playing stuff to promote current work. Yeah. And then kind of just the, the, the tunes just start to drop out of the set and we go back in time to right. life, the idiot, and Stooges material. And that's his comfort place with all that music. Huh. Uh, so it, uh, the only thing that survives from blah, blah, blah in the current Iggy Pop set is is Wild One because people want to hear it. The, the one cover, cover tune on there. Uh, so I don't know. I think it's Iggy, it was Iggy's habit. He doesn't, he has a lot, he's made a lot of albums now. But it, it, usually there's only one or two tunes that survive from, from more recent work. Yeah. So I don't know. don't know why that is. Hmm. Okay. Um, now, they did not ever work again after this. Do you know why? Did they get along okay during this period? They got along very well. I think they were really good friends. Yeah. But again, I, I, you know, in that friendship, they, they, they had something to give each other, definitely. But they also, you think about it, they're both, you know, in competition with each other. They're both, mm. you know, white male rock stars mm -hmm. carving out uh, uh, their own space. So there's obviously the potential exists for them to not want to tread on each other's toes at all. Or uh, So uh, I think these things have a natural ebb and flow. I don't think there was any animosity. There certainly wasn't any animosity ever between Iggy and Bowie, I don't think. Although okay. it's worth saying perhaps they're not naturally the same people, you know, not Very similar. True. Yeah, very not similar people at all. So they might have had, you know, very different in interests. Really, I know they spent a lot of time together I, before I knew them. Living in Berlin together, they shared apartments and stuff, and they had a they had a drug pass together too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it's probably again speculation, but both of them by that point had sort of, you know, they were quitting that, and that was that was the past. And I know for a fact that. Iggy's really allergic to places and people that remind him of those darkest oh. parts of his, uh, you know, getting fucked up, yeah. stuff like that. So he doesn't, he, he doesn't deal with that. So there may have been, 
again, pure speculation on my part. Sure, sure. There may have been an association with the, you know, the drug years that they shared, uh, that, that they both wanted to distance from. Okay. That makes sense. That's good to know. Okay. I, and I think too, something else I read, and it's probably true. I, Iggy probably doesn't want to go through life feeling as if David Bowie is doing him favors. No. You know, he's an artist in his own right. And yeah. so uh, eventually it's like, yes, let's collaborate. But then I got to go off and do my own thing again, just to remind people that I'm not always attached to Bowie's hip. You know? Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, during the blah, blah, blah tour, um, of course, you know, a lot of interviews were done. And I think there must there might have been places where can I do an interview about Iggy Pop, about myself, which, which you know, which doesn't include questions about David Bowie. Yeah. Yeah. And I, see, I'm a guitar player, right, Kevin Armstrong, and I'm happy to talk about my association with these great artists. But if you're Iggy Pop, you don't necessarily want to be asked about David Bowie in every interview. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Okay. Well, we'll get to the songs here in a second. I wanted to read one more thing. So this album, uh, it did pretty well. It reached number 75 in America. It went gold in Canada. Had that wild, real wild child, which we're going to talk about in a second, reached number 10 in the UK. Yeah. It is probably his most commercial album. Um, I did want to read one review. I often read reviews from Robert Criscow if I can find them. And he gave blah, 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 C plus. Good old Robert's always a little snooty about things, but that's okay. You could point out that the idiot and lust for life were cut with the Bowie of low and heroes while blah, blah, blah was cut with the Bowie of let's dance and dancing in the streets. Or you could surmise that copying to conscience did even less for Ig than finding true love did for Chrissy Hind. <laughs> I, that's that's Robert Criscow's take on blah blah blah. So well, that's critics for you. you it go. sure is. It sure is, especially him. Yep. Uh, okay, I might t- sprinkle in some other questions as we go if I can think of if I can remember them. But let's go with Real Wild Child. This was a uh, this was a cover of a song from 1958, I believe, an Australian tune. Why was this song selected? Again, I have no idea. Huh. I have no idea. I wasn't part of the process. 
it was just uh, a fait accompli. I was there, and, and it, I think they'd already made part of the backing track for it or something. And I laid some guitars on it, and uh, and it was great. But it, it just, I just thought, well, this is interesting. It's an old, an old-fashioned 12 bar. I didn't even know the original. Mm -hmm. I thought it had something to do with Buddy Holly. So I, I don't, I have no idea. It just, obviously, it was a great choice because it was his biggest uh, hit. Well, Yes, so this song was used in the Pretty Woman soundtrack, which was a huge movie. And even though he didn't write it, uh, I'm guessing it, maybe you still see some uh, little bit of performance royalty for this song because it still gets played in a lot of movies or TV shows or commercials or whatever, right? Uh, well, it, you know, it's a, it was a, it was a bona fide hit. So I guess that you know there there are residuals that come through my door. Again, I don't know details. I don't mm. pour up the. The sheets of that and stuff but um I, I i would guess yes you know yeah yeah okay okay i wondered if you knew specifically i was reading about a performance and i watched it too some performance on uh children's television a yeah. show called N number 73 yeah. you guys are performing you're there i could see you with your hat on your fez it looks like a little <laughs> bit iggy starts humping a te giant teddy bear yeah. And this is not what children want to see, apparently. <laughs> I, think, I think it was what everyone wanted to see. Oh, that's great. Really funny. It was really funny. I mean, I didn't notice at the time what was happening because I was just concentrating on the guitar or something. And, and it was there were bright lights in our faces or something. And I just didn't, didn't really clock what was happening. Except that when we finished, one of the roadies was like rolling on the floor laughing. <laughs> And then they came to Jim in the dressing in the green room afterwards, you know, and there was kind of some hushed sort of, con, you know, conflab went on with the management and the producer or something. And they came in and, and I remember Iggy just saying, I'm, I'm really sorry. You know, I, I, I don't know what happened. Just any sort of, <laughs> like acting like he didn't. I think he may or not have. He just might have been being Iggy Pop, you know, but they they uh, made the mistake of putting that on a, on a, on a live children's television in the morning. Yes. show and uh, and forgetting the fact that he is actually Iggy Pop and something right. toward might happen <laughs> but it was very funny apparently I read since that it's been a story you know it was a regular at A&M's Christmas parties they used to show that footage really because <laughs> yeah. it is very funny if you've seen it yeah it's and yeah. I think it's only a really fuzzy low-grade version of it on on the internet if you found a good version let me know because i actually when i do my one-man shows I, I show that because it's it's always a hoot you know really i'll send you the it, the link that i the clip that i saw was embedded in an article about it and it was something that was clearly taken from the bbc i think about like with somebody talking about how, how before it about how he did this isn't it isn't it is that yeah, right and then afterwards it's people calling in to talk shows to yell at the artist being promoted. Anyway, it's a it's a little clip about weird things happening on live television. Yeah, I think, yes. I think I've seen that clip, but it's not very good quality, is it? No, it's like no, really fuzzy, no. you know. Yeah, I, it'd be nice if there was a a, a, a sharper version of that somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Okay. One thing I did notice in that clip is that, that song rocks uh, harder than it does on the album, and you sound great in that live clip. When you listen back to, when you think back to recording the album versus hearing the final product, did you, does the final product, is that in line with what you were envisioning as you were recording it? Well, uh, again, it was all out of my hands. It was all Dave and, and David Bowie and things. And I think that they, they, were, they were following the, the sort of fashion of that sound at that time, which was always heavy on the, 
you know, sort of thumping robot drums and skinny guitar sounds that were put through maybe transistor amps instead of old valve amps. And there was, there was all sorts of things about it that were kind of, you know, the, uh, taste decisions which one might not make today about that, those things. Right. When you play live, you, you naturally go to your comfort place where you, I mean, that sound, when we play that song today, it's, it's fierce. It's really great, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's really great, but it, so it's a little sanitized the sound. But again, I, I think that's just a product of the age, the time, and the fashion for that sort of thing. I mean, if you listen to those '80s pop records that were around at that time, they are really, a lot of them are really lightweight, fluffy sound. Sure. They're, yeah. they're not they're not terribly uh, sexy, are they? You know? Yeah. No, I know it's very true. It's very of its time. Okay, so let's go to track two, baby. It can't fall. know what it is what can't fall i don't know <laughs> again you're asking me about the the creative muse behind these songs and, and i was literally just the guitar player you know i was like uh, again and sort of slightly starry-eyed to be playing with these amazing yeah. people so i wasn't saying what's this song about i was just uh, you know trying to keep my end up <laughs> i wondered if after the, you know you guys went to the pub afterwards and you were like Iggy, could you please explain to me what yeah, it no, is? I no, I didn't. I didn't. I was just, no, no, I didn't. I didn't have the confidence to ask those kind of uh, deep okay. questions. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, this is a fun song. It's got uh, some excellent kind of congas in it. And it, there's a running theme throughout most of the songs on this album. I, almost none of it sounds like real drumming, but I don't, I'm not an expert. No, it's not. It's all... It's all like um, Akai MPC or Lydon Drum or, or whatever the whatever the fashionable drum machines. That's what it was. I think it was Erdal Kazilke, the, the Turkish guy, yeah. who was playing about 50% of the instruments on that whole record. And I think it's it's drum programming is what it is. Is there no real drummer and blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's what I wondered about. By the way, Erdal Kizilke is the greatest name in all of all time do you talk to him <laughs> what's he doing i've oh every time i see that name i just think i i would love to know what this guy's all about you know well, yeah i i i have to be slightly circumspect about, about erdl kazilke because first of all it's, it's worth saying that he's a genius musician i mean really brilliant uh brilliant keyboard player he can arrange strings he can do it and he was a and he was a neighbor of Bowie's Turkey. He's a Turkish guy. He's an old, he's a kind of grumpy old Turkish guy. And right. he was a useful person to David for a few years. They did a few collaborations together. And Erdl ended up in the band, in the Bowie band for um, Glass Spider and um, toured the world with David. Uh, I've since only seen him. I did a gig with him 
a few years ago, a kind of Iggy tribute thing, which okay. we did. And that's part of the reason that I'm playing with Iggy again today is because they were tuned into that show in London that I did with Erdl. I get the impression that he's not really a happy bunny these days. And he, oh. something about uh, the way he, his, his experience with Bowie, he doesn't share the view that a lot of us Bowie alumni have, which is that you get you got more from Bowie's collaboration than you ever put, could put in. Yeah. You know, you, it was an amazing thing to be always eternally grateful for to work alongside a guy like that. And I don't think Erdl necessarily shares that view. He, I think, it's something about him considers that life's been unfair to him in some way. Right. So if you talk to him, you have to bear that in mind. <laughs> mm. I might have to seek him out. About it, you know. <laughs> yeah, okay, good to know. One thing I noticed about uh, It Can't Fall, or Baby It Can't Fall, is that during, until the solo, the guitars, your guitars are pretty low in that mix. Let, you know what, let me ask you this. When's the last time you listened to Blah Blah Blah? Oh, it, it would have been about, like when we did that show, when I did that show with Erdl, so that would have been 2014. So that's, not, I haven't heard the, the record for, for about five years. I just put it on to brush up what I knew about the songs and to relearn them kind of thing. But I haven't, I, I haven't listened to it really since then. Okay. So maybe little technicalities like that aren't as top of mind for you, but I did notice that your guitars are buried pretty low in that, in the mix of that song mm -hmm. uh, until the solo part, which is a great solo, kind of a rockabilly type solo. Are you and Bowie on backing vocals? Yeah. You are. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Throughout the whole album. Yeah. And I think maybe Erdl too. Uh, not sure, but maybe not. But no, no I, but definitely uh, David and me. Yeah, that's right. Okay, yeah. good. Well, it sounds great. All right, yeah. good. There are some horns on this, and there's it sounds a little bit like a Hammond organ. I'm assuming neither of those are real. I'm assuming they're synth sound. Uh, the, the Hammond organ may well have been real. Okay. Track three is Shades which I think is a, probably a lot of people's kind of sentimental favorite tune on the album. It's my second favorite. starts off so what's it is a good song it's a fun little and it's got all these layers it's you know it starts off sounding so 
so sort of soft and you know these are the best shades thank you so much for these shades but then the song goes into some almost some even darker territories there's this undercurrent of kind of unrest happening in this cute little pop song about shades it's so strange it's got uh, a bittersweet thing about it i i really like it and i like the big it's got a big chorus it's like it's a it's a it's a big thing you know yes I, it's a great song yeah yeah, that's what. So, are you uh, again? You're one of the people going woo woo, like yeah. that. That's the best part of that song. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So there's some cowbells in there. It starts off a little offbeat. The it's very. It's got a strange beginning before it kind of settles in, and then yeah. the descending bass note that someone hits a note and then it's and it goes way down. I love that part. Yeah. Um, Keyboard. Okay. Maybe keyboard bass on that. Maybe it's uh, really some sort of synth bass thing. I can't remember. But okay. uh, yeah. but I, I enjoyed the the theme of the guitar theme of that, which I came up with. I think da, 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 the, the, the kind of thematic thing that keeps coming in with that. So yeah, yeah. It's a great song. Um, okay, let's let me ask you about the line makes me come in the night. It's one of those things that uh, <laughs> when when rock stars sing about coming, are they are they literally talking about coming or are they kind of hoping that they can get away with people yeah probably <laughs> yeah i mean you know it's a good double entendre isn't it? no one can accuse you of uh obscenity you know by using a transitive verb like come you know right. uh, so there you go so uh, yeah, yeah. I, I guess it was an illusion yeah okay and it's so iggy too i mean if you think about it for him to throw yeah. a line like that into kind of a cute little love yeah. song like this yeah okay um, I didn't realize that this was a single, and I think there's even a video for it. When the, when the album's coming out and singles are rolling out, I think the first one was Cry for Love. We're going to talk about that in a second. But right. are you aware, are you paying attention to, you know, the pop charts and how is this one doing and is Shades taking off? Are you thinking about these things or are you still uh, just playing guitar? Yeah, no, I, I never followed that sort of thing. I just, you know, unless you have a vested interest or some reason why... You you got to do that. I, I I just wasn't particularly interested in that, uh, so I wasn't. I I hoped it would be a big album, and I hoped it would give us the opportunity to, you know, continue to work. But that's that's all. I I, I didn't follow it. Okay, okay. Uh, so Fire Girl. Now this is one of the songs that he wrote with Steve Jones of the Sex Pistols. There were three that he kind of brought. Apparently yep. he had these three, and Bowie heard them and liked them and thought I can do something with this, and then they did the rest. And uh, Fire Girl is one of those. It's definitely the peppiest of the three that he and Steve collaborated on.
the very beginning sounds almost like a completely different song. It's this uh, sounds almost more R&B, like something Janet Jackson might have done or something at the time. And then it kicks into this peppy, jaunty song. Do you have any memories of Fire Girl? Fire Girl. Not not super much. Um, I think I did some swoopy guitar that ended up kind of like Tin Machine. I've sent you a picture, by the way. Um, kind of like Tin Machine. Uh, I used it on Tin Machine on on Heavens in Here. I'm using the same kind of dipping kind of um, tremolo arm technique for that fire girl, I think. Well, yeah, no, I... actually, I'm confusing it with another song. I'm confusing it with Hideaway. Uh... Hideaway, I used that. But um, Fire Girl, I have not a lot of memory. Okay. I'm okay. sending you this picture. And yes, there it is. <laughs> oh my god, oh, that's great. No way. Wait, that's, uh, that's from Blah Blah Blah, us in the studio. With, uh, oh. Me and Iggy trying to look serious and Bowie ruining it with his yes. cheesy grin there. Oh, <laughs> I gotta post this, this is the best. <laughs> It's so fascinating to think of the rooms that, like, that looks, uh, maybe it's just the color, but that looks kind of, kind of like wood paneling on the walls. Uh, I, I think it was wood, I think it was wood paneling, yes. I, I recently went back to Mountain, actually, um, when we, last summer, we played a gig at, at Montreux Jazz Festival with Iggy, and uh, I took a moment to walk down to Mountain to just to revisit the place where I'd made two albums with David Bowie, you know. Uh, it's a museum now. It's mm. it's part of the Montreux Casino as it always was, mm. um, but it, you know the old live room where the, we used to play is full of slot machines and roulette tables, and the the actual control room, the the main door to the exterior is blocked off now, and they've actually got a fake fake equipment in there like a fake oh. desk, so it feels it looks like the same room, but it's all done with props and it's right. kind of strange, yeah. Recreation. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, these rooms. I was talking with the uh, producer, Ron Nevison, the other day. I don't know if you know him or remember him. He was an American producer that did a lot of the pop rock of the 80s, like Heart and Survivor, those types of bands. Yeah. And um, he worked largely in the uh, the Northern California. Is that the record plant? I'm blanking all of a sudden. Like Sausalito, California record plant. Anyway, another like... Uh, you know this symbol this this iconic building where so much great stuff was created and it's the same it's gone it's you know boarded up it might be a museum now that you can walk yeah. around in but yeah he's trying to drum up some funding to kind of save the building for historical purposes okay let's see isolation track five this is the last song on the first side uh, there's kind of a nice piano going on in there it almost sounds a little bit springsteeny Phil Spector, um, I would say Phil Spector. Yeah. 
cool. I, I like that. You know, that's what it sounds like to me. It was the inspiration. Got it. Okay. Um, not a ton of guitar in this one, but it is sort of another sort of sweeping, epic sounding song. Yeah. 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 Is that uh, Bowie playing the saxophone? I can't answer that. I think it must be, you know. I don't remember yeah. any other musicians. I mean, as far as I know, that, that album was entirely made up of Bowie, Iggy, me, Erdl, and maybe Steve Jones. And that, that you know, his contribution to Cry For Love, I, I just don't think there's anyone else on it. So it must have been Bowie playing sax, yeah. That's what I wondered too. And, you know, he was always sort of that, I don't know if he would be a frustrated sax player, but you got the impression that he would like to insert his sax playing more often, I think, into his music than he actually did. And I know, yeah, there's definitely a question when you, like with Tin Machine after that, I think Bowie, uh, Reeves persuaded Bowie to pick up the sax again. Thinking about it, I think that saxophone maybe sounds a little too technically accomplished for Bowie's uh, level of sax. I noticed that too, actually. So I'm not sure about that. I'd have to look that up. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah, I was curious too. It, it does sound a little, no offense to Bowie's sax playing, it does sound a little more kind of soulful or... Um, well, more muso-ish than his yeah. sax playing. You know, he was a kind of self-taught uh, um, player, but you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, one of my favorite lines in any big in any Iggy song is, "I need some loving like a fastball needs control." Yeah. And I just I think that's so funny because none of you strike me as anyone anybody who knows anything about baseball. So how how <laughs> would you even know that a fastball needed control? Well, Iggy, Iggy obviously knows he knows a lot about a lot of stuff. You know, uh-huh. I think maybe you know in his childhood he probably knew all about that. Really. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, okay, he, good. From his father or something, I don't know. But it, that, that reference uh, seemed to come naturally to him, didn't it? Yeah, Yeah, that line has always stuck out to me. And I just, because I'm a big baseball lover too. And just to think that it's the merging of these two worlds that don't, in my mind anyway, them colliding that don't feel like they should have anything to do with each other. Yeah. It's like, yeah. what in the world do Bowie and, and uh, Iggy know about baseball? Yeah. Anyway, okay. Once again, I think you're on backing vocal. There's some nice va- backing vocal on there. Yeah. Um, there's some castanets kind of happening in the background. Yeah. Probably, was... probably again, they were probably a button on a drum machine. That's what I thought. Yep, yeah. that's exactly what I wondered. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. All right. Well, let's talk about Cry for Love. Uh, this was the first single. It definitely sounds different. Stay. That and Winners and Losers, which we'll get to in a minute, sound different than everything else on the album. And yeah, they're more traditional, hard-rocking songs. Yep. Aren't 
Very uh, Cry, much so. uh, Cry for Love, I, I don't think I'm even on it. I think it's just, that was something that... Be, I mean, the reason I ended up on Blah Blah Blah, I think it's got something to do with Steve Jones's uh, inability to uh, comprehend the international visa regulations. And I think he was due to be the guitar player on that record. And because, really? because he fucked up his visa or something, he couldn't go. I think there's, there might be a, some some uh, record of that, but um, so I think they did that in not in Mountain. Cry for Love was done in California, I think. I think. Okay. Yeah. And so that was uh, <coughs> Steve thing was on that, you know. And then he couldn't go to Mountain, so it was me. Okay. Wow, I had no idea. So idea originally, Steve Jones would have played guitar on everything. He, yeah, he might he might have been in the in the hole for the whole thing. Mm. If he'd, if he'd have been able to travel, but he didn't. Okay. Do you know Steve Jones at all? Have you ever interfaced with him? No, I don't know. I don't know him. Uh, we've got really good mutual friends, actually, But uh, and I should um, I should hit him up for some plays on the record or something. Yeah. Show. But uh, uh, no, we, we, you know, I know Glenn Matlock pretty well, but I don't know, I don't know Steve that well. We did huh. share a stage on uh, um, the Blah 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 tour. He did show up, I think, in L.A. and play with us. I've got a photograph. Again, of, of me and of the band with Steve in the front too. So he did. Okay. He did me. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Yeah. This was uh, and again. Maybe you have no idea why, but this was an I thought sort of an odd choice for a first single. Do you remember any conversations around what should we make the first single? Ooh, it's got to be "Cry for Love." Do you remember stuff like that? No, no, no. I wasn't party to anything like that. And again, maybe even Iggy and Bowie didn't. Didn't. Maybe they made suggestions, but I, I guess it would have been A and M if they'd have. They'd have paid over the money. It would have been their calls of what yeah. they chose. So hmm. it, maybe they chose it because Steve also had the name, you know, and, and uh, yeah. he might have uh, helped to get attention for it. Okay, but I don't know. A recurring theme lyrically in this on this album is uh, Iggy having issues with the television, and <laughs> this is another song where he says, "You know, the TV insults me freely." What's yeah. his deal with television? Well, I don't know. There was TVI, wasn't there, as well? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he comes from that same generation of, like, Frank Zappa, you know, people who identify American television as, as a sort of maybe a malign influence in some way. Right. Uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, what, do you know now, does he watch Game of Thrones? Is he, uh, what does he do in the, on the bus, you know, no on tour idea. now? We don't know. We, we don't share a bus anymore. <laughs> we fly everywhere. We have, you know, he has a... Um, you know, separate limo to the gigs, and we we see him at the gigs, but he doesn't hang out so much anymore uh, okay. because again, because of his age now, he has to be really preserve his energy, so he doesn't hang out like he used to hang out. Blah blah blah. We used to hang all the time. We were sharing a bus and everything, but yeah. that's that's not the case now, and completely understandably, you know, he he sure. comes from Miami and we come from Europe, so we meet we meet a few hours before we play. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I didn't know if he, you know, I could see him at Soundcheck being like, did you guys see Game of Thrones last night or you know, whatever. <laughs> so I wondered if he was like that. I don't know. Maybe, I mean, uh, I'm sure there are things that he's aware of, but I, I probably don't think he follows this stuff. I don't okay. know. Okay. You know, um, one thing, one thought I had, and maybe I'm way off base, you tell me. I was listening to and watching some interviews that he did around the time of uh, the release of this album. And he seemed, I, I feel like he now doesn't apologize for being Iggy Pop, where maybe back then he did a little bit. And apologize is probably the wrong word, but I feel like maybe he played the clown a little bit. Like I'm, I'm just kind of this goofy, 
I'm not that smart. I'm I'm just kind of a dope. But yeah, there are interviews where he he talks himself down in, in that kind of way. And these days, he's still a little self self deprecating in his. Uh, you know, he, sometimes he'll talk to an audience these days about how he used to get fucked up in the old days, and and they enjoy that. And ha- but how ha- you know? Uh, so he he I think he's got a good perspective on his life now. And of course, he's he's an established you know, almost legendary person. Yeah, and and uh, I think he enjoys the, the, the kind of status that brings him. Yeah. It does. Uh, but he always just used to refer to him, didn't he? I'm just a nerd or something. And he, yeah, just, he, yeah, he always used to say that. Yeah. Yeah. And I was trying to think, I, I probably since around when lust for life sort of took off again with the train spotting soundtrack, I, I was thinking, I don't know that I've seen Iggy be anything less than, you know, empirical godlike Iggy ever since then like he embraced his stature and has mm. remained there ever since that's kind of my feeling anyway I guess he did if anyone deserves it you know absolutely absolutely now you mentioned the drugs I wanted to bring this up uh, one of the I read something kind of a review of this and it said during the whole period he had gotten clean um, and remained clean during the entire tour for blah 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 but you got a drug problem well, uh, yeah, I, I don't think I would ever characterize myself as having had a serious drug problem at any point in my life. I, I, I mean, I was uh, I was smoking with Iggy hmm. early on in that tour. At the beginning, we were smoking buddies, you know, for a mm-hmm. short while. But I think both of us were at the stage where we shouldn't have been doing that at that point. And, and I think he pretty soon realized that in order to... Uh, shake hands with the various Artie Fufkin type characters we would have to meet every night uh, to sell his record, he had to be straight, so he he was. You know, he was very fit, Mm -hmm. he was newly married to Suchi, Mm -hmm. and he was doing ballet stretches and exercises, which he still does to this day. Mm -hmm. He was eating right, and he was, uh, so he didn't do any, there was no uh, funny stuff, you know, it it was all pretty focused on the work. And from from my point of view, I was at the end of a phase of my life where I just thought well this you know I shouldn't be doing this anymore although I was you know mm-hmm. I think what got to me at the end of the blah 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 tour was just the sheer pressure of the uh, of the amount of work we were doing and the bad effects on your domestic and relationship life that touring for a year and a half around the world and doing 300 gigs does you know that's what it yeah. used to do to young people yeah <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine uh, the quote that I read. It was, uh, for the band, however, it was a different story. Apparently, Kevin Armstrong and drummer Gavin Harrison were in a pretty terrible state by the time they got home to London in summer 87. (laughs) Okay, well, that's someone's idea of what what must have happened, you know. Oh, okay, okay. (laughs) uh, You know, yeah, I I, I wasn't as capable as I am now psychologically of coping with the the pressure of that kind of of touring. Okay. so, so, there, so there was definitely a period at the end of it where, where, you know, I needed to, I needed a break. Okay, let me ask you one other question, and maybe you know the answer, maybe you don't. But a lot of the things that I've read again at this period, Iggy was not only cleaning himself up, but he was enjoying, a, as a lot of articles have stated, a windfall of royalties thanks to the success of things like China Girl and the tracks he had on uh, Tonight and stuff like that. 
did you see any of this for yourself? Could you defi- describe what this windfall might have looked like? Not, not. I mean, I'm not asking you to air his business, but like, yeah, suddenly he had more money than he had before, and he was fitter, and he was better off. Did you notice any of this? No, not at all, because I had no, because I didn't know him before. Blah blah blah. Okay. To me, he was, uh, you know, my idea of Iggy Pop was he, he had been a rock star for decades, and you know, I would expect him to lead a rock star lifestyle. Okay. I would expect him to be dressed well and travel well and uh, and all that stuff so he did all that so again i we we had no idea what his domestic arrangements were like when we weren't touring we were just touring with a rock star so i I had no no inkling uh, about his status in that way at all i think nowadays one is conscious of the fact that he's a you know he's a a high worth a net worth individual and he that's that, that again it's something he's earned you know yeah, I would agree. Okay, track seven is blah blah blah, and this to me sounds like the song on the album that you were given the most freedom to do whatever you wanted on. Maybe I think that, I think that's true of all of them, really. I, I wasn't told what to play. I just came up with parts and uh, and 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 uh, you know get, got the nod from David and Iggy to say, yeah, that's great. Let's do that. Maybe I mean it, it's a great tune. Again, yeah. I, I think it's characterised more by David's liberal use of uh, sampling technology. Yeah, which I you know there is a. You know, he asked me to teach him how to use an Akai S900 sampler, which was a new bit of git, kit then, which is like a rack-mounted early Akai sampler. So it's the thing that's responsible for albums like um, De La Soul's Three ah. and Rising, and yeah. and was the first kind of mass-market studio sampler that everyone was using. And David asked me to teach him to use that because I knew how to use one and I had one. And I tried to teach him how to use it and he got bored very, very quickly and said, no, we need some other solution because I can't be bothered with this. And so David Richards found him a, a guitar pedal, a Boss sampling, sample and hold guitar pedal, where you could literally press a, you know, press and hold a pedal and capture a bit of sound and then spit it back out by pressing the pedal again. And that's that's how the sounds for blah 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 are made. So they're low grade audio, and they're done with a guitar pedal with Bowie mashing it um, on the on the top of the desk okay. with, his, with the heel of his hand grabbing no audio and spitting them back out onto the tape. And that's how a lot of blah 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 was was made. Okay, 
Yeah, the song uh, is reminiscent of Zig Zig Sputnik, that yeah. uh, S1 missile or whatever that song was called. Oh, at the time. Yep. Yeah. But yeah, it does sound like, uh, I, I don't know, it features, I guess, your guitar maybe more than some of the other songs do. Um, and I did wonder when I was, because the song, as you sort of just established, it does sound like a a studio creation, a lot of like... I'm thinking about it in my head and I'm, I'm remembering, yes, I had the same pedal thing ah. uh, for my guitar. So I'm I'm doing like, you know, spitting out riffs and then getting them to loop or yes. something. And that's so I I was I was mirroring Bowie's moves with the vocals and and that kind of thing. That's so, so, and and that when we played it live, I always used to do that. I used to enjoy that. That's the that kind of uh, little sample and hold looping thing okay. to make those effects. Yeah, perfect. Okay, that's what I wondered. Yeah, it does kind of sound that way. It's a great tune. Do you have any idea who Shimon Perez is? Yeah, Shimon Perez. I don't know he, who that is. Okay, he was Israeli prime minister. Oh. And he was a he was a liberal, you know, a liberal uh, party leader in Israel um, in the nineteen seventies, eighties. I think Shimon Peres. So uh, he was a he was a a political figure in the in the Middle East. Okay. Involving in Israeli high up in Israeli politics. Okay. Obviously, someone who I would guess Iggy admired. Yeah, it sounds that way. He mentions him in the lyrics. I was not up on my Middle Eastern politics uh, when I was 13 years old. And so I've always, and I guess I've never gone back. I'm still not an expert or else I would know who Shimon Perez is. I just always wondered why that name was thrown out there. In that I story. don't know. I mean, it could have been. I mean, I'm, you know, again, I'm guessing, but it might have been just the way it sounds. Yeah. The way it sings, Shimon Perez. Mate. Yeah, it good, does. It's a nice sound. And I think it is. maybe he picked it out of the newspaper because of that. I don't know. Yeah. It fits nicely. Uh, okay, track eight is my favorite song of the album, one of my favorite songs of the 80s, Hideaway. so beautiful and so epic do you remember anything about the recording of hideaway yeah again i came up with this sort of um octavided uh, da, 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 yes. the, the riff that's on that and again it was like i said before i used the swooping chords that i, that I later used again with tin machine uh -huh. uh, and that was something that i felt i brought a little voice to that 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 song great song yeah i love it and uh, I would assume you mentioned those sweeping chords. I, lo I love that song. But also throughout the song is this sort of um, uh, jangly kind of happening underneath it all. 
would that have been? I assume that would have been you too. Do you remember dubbing uh, versus? Uh, I'd have to. I'd have to check that out. It might be something Erdl did with the sequencer or something. Uh, I'm not sure, it might have been, uh, or it might be me. I can't. I can't. I, without checking it out, I, I can't answer that. Okay. Um, once again, Iggy's on his TV rant, Raw Greed and King's TV. He's yeah. really angry at the TV at the time. Um, I think this song has one of his best vocals. His voice at this time, uh, and this was something I read in a lot of the reviews, never sounded better. That this was like the high point of his vocal abilities. Did you do you attribute that to the clean living? Did you remember anything like David saying to him, "No, we really got to nail this"? No, I don't think so. I, I, I think it's partly to do with the melodic nature of the material, the songwriting, and, and so so it afforded Iggy the opportunity to to bring out his crooner side, which is something that he's always had. I mean, he used to, you know, sing Frank Sinatra songs at sound checks and things. Oh, and and uh, I think it's something nice we do now with the band is having taken even his older stuff and taken the tempos back down and, and really giving them some weight. It allows him to sing, it makes him sing more sonorously. And he's doing that now. And, it, uh, and there is this part of this uh, crooner uh, chansonnier kind of quality to his voice which I think he gave vent to on blah 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 more than other albums maybe yeah. so again because they were big tunes and he could get get into them like that yeah very true um, you know do you do you have a favorite or a proudest moment or anything on this album where you're I, like I really I nailed like, it like um, uh, Winners and Losers I do like that. I'm I, again. I'm right. I'm right. Driving that whole song with the guitars, and, and uh, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I like the, the slightly Dick Dale Middle Eastern figures that I got into in the solos of, of that song. And uh, I, I break a string near the end, and you can hear that. That's on the recording. Really? Yeah. Right. Right near the end of Winners and Losers. I love it. I start thrashing at the guitar, and and th there's a point at which. It just breaks down, and I, well, I've broken a string. It's a strat, and I'm kind of <laughs> back in whammy bar, and it's something clack, and it's a, it's clearly audible on the record to me. So. Oh man, I got to listen close for that. Um, I want yeah. to read. Uh, unfortunately, back in this period, Rolling Stone magazine was not giving stars; they were just giving writing reviews. And David Frick, uh, who's now their main guy, wrote the review for blah blah blah, and he was actually fairly positive about it. 
But one thing he said was blah blah blah's best performances match Iggy's barb dispatches with aggressive instrumental change-ups like the surprising Young Rascal-style organ break in Baby It Can't Fall and Kevin Armstrong's stutter and strangle guitar against the bittersweet scraping of strings in Winners and Losers. And I had right, a feeling that would have been your favorite track on there because it's probably one well, of the ones, yeah. like you said, where you get to go cut loose. Yeah, then cut loose, and I had a big influence on the sound of it, and it, it was, you know, it was a moment for me on the record. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So. Um, I have to admit, when I was a kid, when I was 13, this was my least favorite song because my Ooh. ear was so attuned to the 80s synthy stuff that this felt right. much like with Cry for Love, they felt like the outliers that were sort of darker and drearier compared yeah. to what I was really digging at the time. Now, yeah. I love it, but yeah. uh, at the time, I would just kind of you know, fast forward through that song a lot to get back <laughs> to the other side. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, they're, they're very pale and dark and rock, uh, you know, epics, aren't they? Those, those two songs. And, uh, you know, I can see how if your introduction to was the more kind of uh, poppy, fluffy sound of, of, of other things, then those, those might be a little daunting. But, but they, they are actually more true Iggy songs than the others on them. Yeah, absolutely. Now that I'm older, I absolutely see that. Yeah. Uh, okay, and then la so we winners and losers, anything else you want to say about that? That's your proudest moment. I can completely see that. Uh, yeah, no, 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 not really. I mean, it was, you know, it, as I say, it's it's a real performance. So, it, what you, when you record as songs today, as a as a studio musician, you never, you hard, you quite often don't get to play the whole thing from beginning to end. You know, you're able to sort of go into little bits and massage little bits of the song and, and take little, like almost almost like film acting or something like that. But uh, in when we, we were working to real to real tape recorder in those days you had to perform the entire piece and i i felt that winners and losers has it has this kind of building aggression all the way through it which is uh, definitely something that i uh, I, I rose to the occasion during those sessions and i i really felt like oh i'm doing something really good here groundbreaking for me you know and and such a great opportunity so it's, it's that's why it's a favorite it was like it felt like a breakthrough for me yeah do you uh maybe 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 this isn't how it works do you remember in the studio, did David or Iggy ever, did they say to you like, wow, great job, Kevin, or yeah, they did. pass on that kind of stuff? Yeah, they did. Definitely. They're always encouraging. And David was always encouraging like that to musicians. Uh, there was never any, ever any uh, negativity from them about stuff. They, they, they're very good like that. And, and Iggy says the same thing to us on stage today. He'll turn around and say, that was great. Or something. Good. Just shout out. And that, hey, that's great. You know, he's really good. He's genuinely enthusiastic, and and again, I think that characterised David's work all the way. Everything I ever did with him, he would encourage people, and he was really good and open to work with like that. Good. Okay. Now there is one more song, but it was not on the cassette tape that I got in 1986 called "Little Miss Emperor." It's sort of attached later. Do you do you remember anything about that? It's kind of an oh. odd tune.
again, you're reminding me of it for the first time in years, but I, I don't remember. Was it not on the original record, right? It's, no. Was it, what, so how did it, I do remember it. But I love you, little Miss Emperor. Yeah, I barely I, know it. I mean, I've only heard it. Yeah. I mean, I listen to the whole album now, but I, uh, it's the I'm one I know the least, you know? I have to look that up now. When, when did it appear then? Did it, did it come out somewhere sometime I, later? I'm trying to remember. I wondered if it wasn't until CDs started happening a little bit more. Um, maybe so in the later late, 80s. Later digital release or something. Yeah. Like release. Okay. Yeah. So um, it's almost more of like a sound collage. There's... Uh, harps there's piano but there's also stabbing guitar there's some kind of like wubba wubba bass keyboard there's some horns it's a it's kind of an odd mixture maybe that's why it wasn't deemed worthy of being on the original album do you remember i, mean, I, think, I think you know it may have been a piece that erdl put together with david and they used ah. it as a, i think you know erdl had a big really big influence on the sound in blah 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 because he did so much of the um programming work and keyboards and stuff and so you know the drums and keyboards sounds do have, play a real big part in that record it's not really a guitar based record is it apart from a few no. tracks so um, maybe that was something that Erdl did Erdl had done um, the Raymond Briggs snowman thing what's it called no no uh, the, the when the wind blows it's called mm -hmm. uh, with, with Bowie um, that's just right blah 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 and uh you know they, they were collaborating a lot in the studio so maybe it was something okay that makes sense it's probably some uh kind of thing he worked on okay uh well that's pretty much all the songs real quick i want to throw out a couple little things according to stereo gum they late they rated uh blah 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 iggy's sixth best album <laughs> that includes all the stooges stuff that was okay. pretty high i thought that was okay yeah. <laughs> and then diffuser uh, was not as kind. They ranked it number 14 out of the 16. Right. So uh, there's, you know, opposing views and different opinions about this. I could, as I get older and I'm more cynical and more, uh, I, I, I can understand, like I said, why people may not gravitate or warm to this album, but it was the perfect thing for me at 13 years old at that time. And I've been a fan ever since. You know? Well, you're not alone. I mean, as, as I say, his biggest, his, his most widely known record. So you yeah. can't argue with that. Really, in terms of, uh, it, it brought people towards him, and uh, yeah, it was it was a way in for some people. Yeah, very true. Um, last question: What? Why does Ziggy limp? I think he had some accident on a on a bar crash barrier a while back, a few years ago, and he maybe maybe he always had a little bit of a twisted spine or something. Okay. Um, so I don't know. He 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 definitely uh, as he gets old, he has a little has a pronounced limp now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't notice it, you know, when I was younger, but I it it's front and center now because I've seen him three or four times in the last ten years or so, and. Um, I wondered if like I wondered why it showed up all of a sudden if he had had hip replacement surgery or um... he probably he probably needs that really but I don't know whether he's ever going to do it okay. uh, he may and he may not I don't know but um, but he does he does have a, a, a slight twist in his uh, his hip his hip now uh, which causes him to to and I think yeah. it you know he's been throwing himself into crowds all his sure. life. Yeah. Uh, I think he did cop a, a, a break some while ago um, doing that and he got an injury which is, has got worse over time yeah yeah do you just play with him when he plays everywhere but the states 
Uh, I don't know. I don't understand the question. I mean, we're his regular band, apart from the very few shows he did with Josh Homme when they did Post Pop Depression. Okay, I'm so they to did pick that. Up. They did that, and I think they did one isolated show in California last year. Okay. I saw, I saw him well it was a Stooges reunion I saw that I saw him back in like he was promoting Skull Ring so that was probably before your time yeah um, and then I saw but then I saw him at a festival here called Riot Fest and I think yeah. James Williamson was playing with him what year was that what year that was would that? have been probably four years ago no that was us was it really? Was that you yeah. playing Riot Fest here in yeah. Colorado? We definitely played Riot Fest in, in Colorado. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> See, I didn't think you played there. And so I wondered if he had different bands. Like he has a U.S. band that includes James Williamson or something. And then he's got uh, a European uh, band that includes you. No, no. We're the we're the band everywhere. Uh, apart from, as I say, the, the little break he took with Josh Homme Hom yeah. to do, to do uh, post-pop. Um, but other than that, it's it's us. So it's us okay. everywhere. Okay. So if you saw Riot Fest, and you would have seen us. That that was you. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Man, who knew we were there? Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's pretty much blah blah blah. I, um, do you, okay. is there one one lingering memory? Your favorite memory? A thing when you think when I say the words blah 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 to you, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, I can't really say. <laughs> I knew it. Oh, that's great. <laughs> there is there is something or someone, but I can't really say. So, uh, 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 okay. Julian Temple visited us regularly. Was okay. Hanging. Yeah, the film director. And Sean Lennon uh, visited those sessions too. Really? Yeah, because he was uh, over holiday on a, on a holiday with uh, Yoko. I used to leave him with David sometimes. <laughs> so there were lots of things like that. But you know, but that that's it. I mean, it was a lovely moment for me. Again, a, a career defining uh, episode for me to do that record with Iggy. And obviously, it's led on to a long association yeah. with breaks. But it's it's now it's put us in a position where from right directly from that collaboration. I'm here in a position as his, his possibly yeah. his last band leader, and 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 loving every minute of it. You know. Yeah. Um, do you remember who Bowie's girlfriend was that he was skiing with at this period? Oh no, I do not. Okay, I didn't know if it was someone. I don't you would know. know. I mean, I think Coco Schwab was around, around, mm -hmm. but I don't know that they were in a relationship like that so it uh, again you can't always rely on the, those kind of uh, stories I, it, yeah. I, I so i don't know who <laughs> he was with no i'm okay. no okay. i just wonder i was curious if he had a famous girlfriend at the time that was lingering in the studio you know? maybe he did, but okay. I, I didn't catch it <laughs> okay well thank you as always kevin you're the greatest uh it means the world to me that you talked to me and uh i'm humbled by it and thank you for doing this with me you're welcome john there you have it. Kevin Armstrong, Iggy Pop's Blah Blah Blah. I love that album. I hope this was fun for you. I love it. It's so much fun for me. And I got to tell you, if nothing else, go check out Hideaway. It is the greatest, such an epic, soaring song. I love this track. By the way, it was Kevin that inspired the whole deep dive program to begin with. When I was recording the outro for his original episode in December, I remember, I think I said something in there like, wouldn't it be great to bring people like Kevin back and just talk about one album, which in that case, I was speaking specifically of blah, blah, blah. 
And as those words are coming out of my mouth as I'm recording the outro, I'm thinking, why couldn't I do that? I've built decent relationships with all these people. Maybe they would come back and talk to me again. Who knows? So I ran the idea past Yan and he was all into it. So here we are. Anyway, next month's deep dive is already recorded. And uh, it's what with another guitar legend, honestly. He was just on the show uh, a month or two ago. I'll leave it at that. I'm sure you can figure out who that is. Anyway, uh, thanks to everybody. Thanks to Yan. Thanks to Kevin. We'll talk to you guys soon.